0: Welcome to Quantum Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallet. If you haven't listened to the last episode about the history of research into Alzheimer's disease, I'd recommend you listen to that before digging into this episode. Decades of research and still clinical trials of drugs to treat Alzheimer's fail again and again. Still, researchers are looking to the future. That's next. Space travel depends on clever math. Find unexplored solar systems in Quantum Magazine's new daily math game, Hyperjumps. Hyperjumps challenges you to find simple number combinations to get your rocket from one exoplanet to the next. Spoiler alert, there's always more than one way to win. Test your astral arithmetic at hyperjumps.quantummagazine.org. We all know the failures of clinical trials don't necessarily mean that the science they're based on is invalid. In fact, amyloid hypothesis supporters have often argued that many of the attempted therapies could have failed because patients enrolled in the trials didn't get the anti-amyloid drugs early enough in their battle with Alzheimer's disease. The problem with the disease is that since no one knows for certain what causes Alzheimer's disease, there's no way of knowing how early the interventions need to be. Risk factors might arise when you're 50 years old, or when you're 15. If they happen very early in life, are they definitive causes of a condition that occurs decades later? And how useful can a potential treatment be if it needs to be prescribed that early? Ralph Nixon is the director of research at the Center for Dementia Research at the Nathan S. Klein Institute in New York State.
1: The amyloid hypothesis has evolved over time so that every time there's a new set of findings that question some aspect of it, it morphs into a different hypothesis.
0: But the fundamental premise that extracellular amyloid plaques are the trigger for all the other pathologies has stayed the same. Scott Small is the director of the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at Columbia University. Small, a researcher who works on alternate theories, says he started to lose respect for a few of the amyloid cascade supporters who continue to hold their breath for encouraging results.
2: Because they've now moved from being dispassionate scientists to being a little bit more ideological and religious. They so believe in it. It has to be right. If only there was one more experiment... And so I tell them a few things. I say, first of all, let's talk about the science. I say, why do you think the amyloid hypothesis is right? They go to the genes. And I say, well, and by the way, I've talked to John Hardy, Dennis (laughs) Selko, the true framers. They agree with the idea that these genes cause anosomal traffic jams first, so they're scientists. Now you could still say, okay, sure, those happen first, but it's the secretion of amyloid plaque that still triggers everything. That's okay. But then explain the anatomical biology problem. And They can't. So people often jump the gun when they say, well, the amyloid hypothesis has to be right because the genes tell us this is right. The genes don't say amyloid plaques. The genes say misprocessing of amyloid precursor protein in endosomes. A lot of things happen after that.
0: Small notes that while the drug trials were floundering, new scientific findings were poking holes in the fundamental hypothesis as well. For example, neuroimaging studies were confirming previous autopsy findings that some people who died with extensive amyloid deposits in their brain never suffered from dementia or other cognitive problems. The failures also lend more significance to an anatomical mismatch that Alois Alzheimer noted more than 100 years ago. The two brain regions where the neural pathology of Alzheimer's disease starts, the hippocampus and the nearby intorhinal cortex, generally show the least accumulation of amyloid plaques. Instead, Small says amyloid plaques first get deposited in the frontal cortex, which gets involved in later stages of the disease and doesn't show a lot of cell death. Decades can pass between the first appearance of amyloid and tau deposits and the neural death and cognitive decline seen in the disease, which raises questions about the causal connection between them. The hypothesis took another hit in July of 2022. That's when a bombshell article in Science revealed that data in the influential 2006 Nature paper linking amyloid plaques to cognitive symptoms of Alzheimer's disease may have been fabricated. The connection claimed by the paper had convinced many researchers to keep pursuing amyloid theories at the time. Riddy Patira, a behavioral neurologist in Pennsylvania who specializes in neurodegenerative diseases, says for many researchers, the new expose created a big dent in the amyloid theory. Neurology professor Paul Aizen at the University of Southern California acknowledges that science should encourage researchers to look at this in different ways.
3: The debate among scientists has been from the beginning in Alzheimer's disease, and that's always been to my thinking, productive, constructive, and a positive tone. We're taking different approaches, which we should do. So we try to sort out where the value is and and how we should proceed in the future. But of course, in academic medicine and in commercial science, everybody has a lot riding on the outcome. And so it's not only that the debate is productive, always careers are dependent upon the answers. So People are very invested in their own positions.
0: And there was a lot writing on the amyloid hypothesis. It takes, on average, more than a decade and $5.7 billion to develop a single drug for Alzheimer's disease. Here's Ralph Nixon again.
1: It's political in the sense that it is money-driven. Pharmaceutical companies are not shy in saying that they've invested many billions of dollars in this. And they did that because they are so convinced that it's going to work.
0: Perhaps because of those heavy commitments and the near lock that the amyloid hypothesis had on public attention, some researchers faced pressure to accept it even after its unsuccessful track record was clear. When Kyle Travaglini was a first year graduate student at Stanford University in 2015, he was drawn to Alzheimer's research as a focus for his doctoral thesis. It felt like a natural choice. His grandmother had been officially diagnosed with the disease, and he'd already spent dozens of hours scouring the medical literature for information that might help her. He sought out the advice of two professors who were teaching a cell biology class he was taking.
4: I was like, I want to focus a project around Alzheimer's disease. And they're like, don't even focus your project, like a class project. Don't even do that much less like, oh yeah, no, don't go into Alzheimer's research. Those two professors basically said it's already solved. It's going to be amyloid. There's going to be anti-amyloid drugs that are going to work in the next like two years, three years. Don't worry about it. And then I remember later talking with another professor who was like, oh, and it's just too complicated.
0: That professor told Travaglini to tackle Parkinson's instead. The professor told him that scientists had a much better sense of that disease, and it was a much simpler problem. So Trevoglini shelved his plans to work on Alzheimer's disease and instead did his thesis on mapping the lung. Researchers who were already committed to non-amyloid approaches to Alzheimer's say they ran into a lot of resistance. Scott Small says there were many people who suffered under the yoke of the amyloid people. Those not studying the amyloid hypothesis couldn't get grants or funding, and they were in general discouraged from pursuing the theories they really wanted to pursue. Donald Weaver is a co-director of the Crimble Brain Institute in Toronto. It's
5: frustrating trying to get different stories out there in a world that was dominated by protein misfolding for many, many years. The animal models are not great. So even if you do get it, it's not like we have, you know, and here is the perfect animal model. And if you show efficacy in this, who cares? Lots Um, of people have shown efficacy in that model and the drug failed in human trials. So... It's an area with many, many challenges in it, all the way from the fundamental understanding of the disease, clean through to the animal models, which aren't great. And then even if you go to human clinical trials, is it more than one disease? Maybe you have the perfect drug for a subset, except we're not good enough to recognize what that subset is. This is still pushing boulders up a hill, and it's a big hill.
0: Weaver says it's been an uphill struggle to get funding for his non-amyloid work. When George Perry, a professor at the University of Texas, San Antonio, put forth his theories that amyloid was coming from inside the neurons, he says everybody hated it. He says he had to discontinue the work because he couldn't get funding for it. Rick Livesey is a professor of stem cell biology at University College London.
2: It's not that there are sort of amazing ideas that are being squashed by the forces of darkness. It's not like that. But equally, you know... People tend to fill positions in institutions and departments, if you're in the hiring position, that reflect your own views. I don't mean there's some great conspiracy or anything like this, but it just means that there are definitely some issues around innovation in dementia research.
0: Christian Bell is a professor of biochemistry at the University Medical Center of the Johannes Gutenberg University of Mainz in Germany. In 2016, he took the bold step of organizing a meeting called Beyond Amyloid, an open-ended discussion of new ideas about the causes of Alzheimer's disease. He says he was criticized by different colleagues out of the amyloid fields that disliked the idea of such a meeting. Despite the obstacles, some non-amyloid cascade research did make landmark progress during the early 2000s, In particular, a critical finding around the turn of the millennium reinvigorated interest in the lysosomal explanation. Anne Cataldo, a postdoctoral fellow in Ralph Nixon's lab in New York, was studying the properties of organelles called endosomes in Harvard's donated brains. Endosomes are a highly dynamic network of vesicles that sit under the cell membrane and aid lysosomes. Their job is to take in proteins and other materials from outside the cell, sort them, and ship them where they need to go, sometimes to the lysosomes for autophagy. You can think of endosomes as a cell's version of FedEx, says Jessica Young, an associate professor at the University of Washington who studies Alzheimer's. Cataldo noticed that in the brains from Alzheimer's patients, the endosomes in neurons were abnormally large, as though the endosomes were struggling to process the proteins they were picking up. If molecules slated for destruction don't get labeled, recycled, or shipped properly, that disruption of the endosomal-lysosomal pathway can trigger a cascade of problems both inside and outside cells— Just imagine unsorted, undelivered packages piling up in the fleet of FedEx trucks. The endosome enlargement might have seemed like just a consequence of the increasing brain pathology, except for two important points. It didn't happen in the brains of people with other neurodegenerative diseases that they examined, only Alzheimer's. And the enlargement started happening before amyloid plaques were deposited. Researcher Ralph Nixon says that finding was very pivotal. Furthermore, pioneering Alzheimer's researcher Ann Cataldo showed that the endosomes were enlarged in people who did not yet have symptoms of Alzheimer's, but who carried a mutation, ApoE4, that affected how their body handles cholesterol. ApoE4 is the most significant genetic risk factor ever found for late-onset Alzheimer's. People who have one copy of APOE4 have a two- to three-fold elevated risk of developing Alzheimer's. People who have two copies have an eight- to twelve-fold elevated risk. Cataldo, Nixon, and their colleagues published their findings in 2000. Since then, evidence has implicated lysosomal disruptions in problems ranging from neurodegenerative diseases to lysosomal storage diseases. That's when toxic molecules pile up in lysosomes instead of breaking down. It was also discovered that when APP is cleaved to make amyloid beta in neurons, it happens inside their endosomes and studies have shown that the endosomal-lysosomal system routinely starts to slow down and malfunction in aging cells. This is a fact that's made these organelles into hot topics for longevity research. Cataldo died in 2009, and work on endosomes in Nixon's lab and with his collaborators stalled. But Small and his team were knee-deep in this research area at the time. In 2005, they found evidence that in certain endosomes, a complex of protein known as a retromer might be malfunctioning in Alzheimer's disease and triggering endosomal traffic jams that cause to accumulate in neurons. Just as the genetics experiments in Hardy's lab and others first helped propel the amyloid cascade hypothesis to prominence, genetics did something similar for the alternative hypotheses over the past 15 years. Here's Rick Livesey again. Genetics
3: is definitely seen as the anchor for people that might make sense of stuff.
0: Starting in 2007, massive statistical studies of the genome identified dozens of new genetic risks for Alzheimer's. These genes were generally far weaker in their effects than APOE4, but they all increased the likelihood that someone might develop Alzheimer's. They also directly connected the late-onset forms of the disease to multiple biochemical pathways in cells. These include the immune system, cholesterol metabolism, and the endosomal lysosomal system. Many of these genes were also among the earliest to become active in Alzheimer's disease. Researcher Ralph Nixon says these discoveries were what made others start to believe that this was meaningful. The endosomal-lysosomal hypothesis was not only becoming more concrete, it was looking increasingly likely to be an essential piece of the Alzheimer's puzzle but supporters of the amyloid cascade hypothesis still believe the genetics are on their side. The only three genes known to directly cause Alzheimer's, rather than just increasing the risk for it, are for the proteins APP, presenilin-1, and presenilin-2, and mutations in all three of them cause pileups of amyloid. Rudy Tanzi is an investigator at Massachusetts General Hospital.
6: Anybody who looks at that and says amyloid is not causative is just either hiding their head on the ground or they're being disingenuous.
0: Tansy says genetics will set you free.
6: In 2008, I discovered an Alzheimer's gene called CD33. We didn't know what it was. Now we know that CD33 is the switch that turns the microglial cells from housekeepers into killers. So. When the microglial cells is getting the signals of dying neurons, CD33 is, has to turn on and say, stop cleaning and start killing. And then TREM2 was the next Alzheimer's gene found in neuroinflammation that said, stop killing, go back to housekeeping. It was the yin and yang. And now we have about 60 Alzheimer's genes that all control this pathway. And they predispose but do not guarantee late-onset disease.
0: Studies have suggested that genes could be involved in ways that don't depend on the amyloid hypothesis. For example, in 2010, Nixon and his team reported that mutations in presenilin-1 disrupted lysosomal function. Evidence also suggested that all three causal genes are involved in making endosomes swell. The debates about what the findings mean are still fierce, but many researchers in the Alzheimer's field are feeling a rumbling underneath their feet as the field shifts. Nixon says it's shifting toward the idea that amyloid is not unimportant, but it's not the only thing. On Nixon's desk is a copy of the June 2022 issue of Nature Neuroscience, and next to it, a mug that has the issue's cover printed on it given to him by the lead author of the study. In the cover feature of that issue, Nixon and his team reported one of the most powerful pieces of evidence yet that the simple version of the amyloid hypothesis is wrong, and that something deeper within neurons is fundamentally malfunctioning. If their findings in mice and a handful of human tissues hold true in follow-up studies, they could change our understanding of the origins of Alzheimer's disease. Using a novel probe, they fluorescently labeled lysosomes involved in autophagy in mice that had been genetically induced to develop Alzheimer's disease. The probe allowed the researchers to watch the disease progress in living mice under a giant microscope. Nixon remembers seeing the first of the resulting micrographs.
1: The first one that I was shown by Zhu Lee was the most spectacular image that we've ever collected. And it's not been published. I've shown it in slides, but it was so out of the realm of anything I had seen in an Alzheimer's brain. It was like the finale of fireworks, much more dramatic than even some of the things we've published.
0: The image showed structures of the brain that looked like flowers. These flowers turned out to be neurons bulging with toxic accumulations of proteins and molecules. After a contest among the team members, the team decided to name these neurons panthos, from the ancient Greek word for flower, anthos, with an added P for poison. Further work revealed that the panthos neurons were products of autophagy gone wrong, Normally in autophagy, highly acidic lysosomes carrying digestive enzymes fuse with vesicles carrying waste. The fusion results in a structure known as an autolysosome, in which the waste is digested and then recycled into the cell. But in mice with Alzheimer's, the autolysosomes were swelling with accumulations of amyloid beta and other waste proteins. The lysosomes and autolysosomes were not acidic enough for the enzymes to digest the waste. The neurons kept making more and more autolysosomes, each of which grew bigger and bigger. Soon, they were poking into the cell membrane, pushing it outward to form the petals of the flower shapes that Nixon had seen. Engorged autolysosomes also accumulated in the center of the neuron— fusing with the organelles there and forming piles of amyloid fibrils that started to look like plaques. Eventually, the autolysosomes burst and released their toxic enzymes, damaging and slowly killing the cell. The dead cell's contents then leaked into the surrounding space and started poisoning nearby cells, which in turn also became panthos neurons before exploding. Microglia cells that are part of the brain's immune system swooped in to clean up the mess, but in the process, they also started damaging nearby neurons. Nixon and his co-workers also realized something else. With traditional staining and imaging methods, the masses of proteins accumulating in the autolysosomes inside panthos neurons would have looked exactly like classic amyloid plaques outside of cells the extracellular amyloid plaques weren't killing the cells because the cells were already dead. Their discovery implied that anti-amyloid therapies would be futile. Here's Nixon.
1: The logic of targeting extracellular amyloid after the cells have died is like trying to cure a disease in someone who's buried in the cemetery. The cell has died, and that's why the plaque is there. So removing the plaque is removing the tombstone, I suppose.
0: Because their initial findings were in mice, the team searched for similar panthos neurons in human samples. Knowing what to look for, they found them easily. Bright bursts of the greens, reds, and blues of the poisonous flowers filled the microscope screen. Charlotte Tunison a professor of neurochemistry at the Amsterdam University Medical Centers, calls it a very interesting paper and a step closer to the cause. She says understanding the mechanisms of early disruptions in Alzheimer's disease could help not only in developing drugs, but also in identifying biomarkers. People have long debated which form of amyloid is most toxic and where it does the most damage. USC's Paul Azen says this study provided ample evidence that intracellular amyloid may play an important role in the disease. He says what could be interesting now would be for neuropathologists to check how frequently and extensively these abnormalities appear in Alzheimer's brains. Azen says for drug therapy research...
3: I think that's all the more reason to continue exploring small molecules that can penetrate into the cell and actually inhibit the enzymes that generate the A-beta.
0: Meaning amyloid beta. Since the PONTHOS paper was published, Nixon and his team may have discovered why the lysosomes in Alzheimer's patients are not acidifying properly. When APP is being digested in the endosome, one of the byproducts is amyloid beta. But another one is a protein called beta-CTF. Too much beta-CTF inhibits the lysosome's acidification system. Nixon says beta-CTF could therefore be another important potential target for drug development that has generally been ignored. A week after he published the Pontos paper, Nixon and several other researchers were awarded the Oscar Fisher Prize, an award given at the University of Texas San Antonio for novel ideas that gaze beyond prevailing theories of Alzheimer's disease. The award was originally intended to be for one person who came up with the most comprehensive explanation of the causes of Alzheimer's disease, but Nixon says the founders eventually broke it up into multiple prizes because it's impossible to capture every different aspect of such a complex disease. Nixon won for his description of problems in the ability of endosomes to traffic proteins and lysosomes to clear proteins. Others won for their work on abnormalities in cholesterol metabolism, mitochondria, neural stem cells, and neuron identities. The hypothesized sequence of events in the pathology is murky. Various arguments can be made for what comes first, second, or third— But all the dysfunctional pathways involving the endosomes and lysosomes, the immune system, cholesterol metabolism, mitochondria, neural stem cells, and the rest, might be intertwined pieces of a single gigantic puzzle. Nixon thinks they can be integrated into one entity, which he calls the elephant. For example, endosomal, lysosomal dysfunctions could easily influence all the other pathways and send disruptions rippling throughout individual cells and the brain. But if the dysfunctions are intertwined, there might not be a single definitive trigger for Alzheimer's disease. Other researchers are also beginning to see Alzheimer's disease less as a single discrete disorder than as an assortment of processes that go wrong together. If that's true, Treatments that target just one protein in this cascade, such as amyloid, might not have much of a therapeutic benefit. But a cocktail of drugs, say one that targets the elephant's legs, one that targets its tail, and one that targets its trunk, might be enough to knock the animal down. Still, Nixon says too many people insist on casting the debate over what causes Alzheimer's as an either-or problem. In Alzheimer's disease, amyloid beta may be one killer, but Nixon says there could be a range of toxic accumulating proteins that are equally important in killing the cell. He compares amyloid beta to something many of us have seen.
1: It's like the banana peel in a garbage can. There's a whole host of other garbage that might be even more disgusting.
0: Alzheimer's researcher Scott Small agrees that it could make the most sense for the endosomal lysosomal hypothesis, the neuroinflammation hypothesis, and the amyloid cascade hypothesis to combine at some point.
2: At some point, you can Occam razor this to become one meta theory. What are the ways to say that something is plausibly a driver of a disease? complex diseases, meaning there's no single genes, slowly progressive smoldering diseases, meaning by the time I see a brain under the microscope, who knows what was first, second, or third, all pathways are implicated, right? So the go-to way sometimes the short circuit is genes. And I think that's right, except that you might know that if you were to over-index genes, you would never get to insulin and diabetes. You would never get to immune therapy and cancer. There are no genes. So the better, I think, in my view, if you're going to say that something really causes a disease, it has to account for integrative biology. Does it account for the genes if they're there, the molecular biology? Does it explain the cellular manifestations Mm -hmm. of the disease? And then finally, does it account for where the disease begins?
0: The implications of taking this broader perspective could reach beyond the Alzheimer's field, Clues gleaned from Alzheimer's could help our understanding of other neurodegenerative disorders such as Parkinson's disease, ALS, and even aging. The reverse could also apply. The Crimble Brain Institute's Donald Weaver often reads the ALS and Parkinson's literature as well, hoping that their insights will flip over to our world. Enthusiasm for explanations beyond the amyloid cascade hypothesis doesn't mean that people have lost interest in the anti-amyloid drugs now being tested. Azin and many other researchers are still optimistic that we can build on the moderate success of lecanemab, Even if the drugs address only part of what's wrong in Alzheimer's disease, any improvement could be a lifeline for patients. Weaver says he's talked to others about the various ideas.
5: These patients need something, and I really hope that one of these turns out to be right.
0: After so many years of drug failures, the lacanumab results were welcome news for John Hardy, an Alzheimer's researcher at St. Mary's Hospital Medical School in London. He flew all the way to San Francisco so he could be present when the results were presented at the end of November of 2022 at the Clinical Trials on Alzheimer's Disease Conference.
5: When the
2: results were announced, I booked my flight just to hear the results. And of course, not just to see the results. I could watch the results online, I think, but also to hear what other people think of the results. I've never done that before, ever.
0: Even though Hardy helped to launch the amyloid cascade hypothesis decades ago and still believes in its power, he has also always been extremely receptive to evolving ideas. In 2013, Hardy and his team discovered that mutations in a gene involved in the immune system could increase the risk of developing late-onset Alzheimer's disease. Since then, he's shifted the focus of his lab to studying microglia. He suspects that amyloid deposits might activate microglia directly to cause damaging inflammation. To many researchers, the immune system offers an appealingly flexible explanation for Alzheimer's, one that fits with both the amyloid hypothesis and other ideas. A report in the July 2020 issue of The Lancet listed the variety of known risk factors for dementia. Weaver says they were all over the place.
5: It just looks so varied. You see air pollution, repetitive head trauma, systemic infections. I mean, it goes on and on. And you go, well, they're as different as night and day. What is a single key that tries to unify all of these in this immune system?
0: If you bang your head and damage tissues, the immune system steps in to clean up the mess. If
5: you have a bacteria transiently going through your brain, the immune system wakes up and tries to deal with it. Air pollution. Air pollution turns on. Inflammation. There's even some very good studies that show that social isolation leads to inflammation of the brain. And I think an underappreciated issue is the overlap between depression and dementia. Depression is a risk factor for dementia. Depression frequently is an antecedent to dementia. Most people have dementia, understandably get depressed. And certainly neuroinflammation is increasingly part of depression.
0: The immune system is also intimately connected to the lysosomal system. Jessica Young is an associate professor at the University of Washington who studies Alzheimer's disease.
4: Processes of how cells use the lysosomal pathway to
0: internalize, degrade, or recycle proteins are critical to
4: how a neuroimmune response may occur.
0: But the endosomal-lysosomal network is also very finely tuned and has a multitude of moving parts that work differently in different types of cells. Young says that makes it trickier to target. Still, she's hopeful that there will be a burst of new clinical trials targeting this network in the next few years. Young, Small, and Nixon are all working on targeting different aspects of this network. Part of the allure of the amyloid cascade hypothesis was that it offered a simple solution to Alzheimer's disease. Some of these other hypotheses bring in extra layers of complexity, but it's a complexity that scientists and a growing number of startups now seem willing to tackle. You remember Alzheimer's researcher Kyle Travaglini from our last Alzheimer's episode, whose grandmother had the disease. Travaglini went back to Alzheimer's research at a late stage of his doctoral work. In October of 2021, he started at the Allen Institute, sifting through slices of brain samples from people who had died of the disease. He and his team are compiling the Seattle Alzheimer's Disease Cell Atlas, a reference that will detail the effects of the disease on the brain's diverse mix of cells. As part of that work, they're analyzing changes in the activity of more than 100 kinds of cells in the cortex during the progression of Alzheimer's disease. Here's Travaglini.
4: Putting sort of a cellular face on the disease is not something that's been typically done in Alzheimer's, but I think can be really powerful, because it allows us just to think through sort of like the order of events and how one could cause the other. And you really have to think about the cells to get there.
0: Trevoglini says that puts all of the other molecular changes and hypotheses into the context of the cell that they're actually occurring in. If you put amyloid or tau protein on cells in a dish, the cells start to deteriorate and die.
4: But it's not been so clear like how the cells themselves are changing. And the neurons are the ones that actually form the network that allows us to think and feel and all that kind of stuff. And so that's actually what is being changed as the course of the disease and the glia, especially the microglia and the astrocytes are the cells that are responding. And so while there's protein deposition, the actual players who are responding to it, who are creating it, who are dying as a result of it, or perhaps some other mechanism, are the cells.
0: Travaglini's work has already turned up interesting insights, such as the fact that the neurons most vulnerable to the disease are those that have made extra-long connections across the cortex of the brain, where much of our cognitive ability arises. He says something about that type of cell could make it more susceptible to the disease. Travaglini and his co-workers have also seen an increase in the number of cells such as microglia adding even more evidence to the idea that neuroinflammation is a major part of the process. They've also already uncovered a number of genes that are expressed improperly in the brains of people with Alzheimer's disease, including genes linked to the lysosomal-endosomal network. Eventually, their work could help to uncover the timing of when things go wrong in specific cells, teasing apart one of the greatest mysteries of the disease. Travaglini has tried to visit his grandparents as often as possible. A while ago, his grandmother needed to be moved into an assisted living memory home because of her Alzheimer's. His grandfather went too. They were constant companions since they met in Philadelphia in college. They married more than 60 years ago in Japan, where he was stationed for military service. It's always been hard on him to see her slip away, but it became even harder recently when he, too, was diagnosed with dementia, although not Alzheimer's. Early in the morning of December 1st, 2022, Travoglini's grandmother died. She was 91. Her Alzheimer's had progressed too far for her to understand what her grandson was working on. But his grandfather at least had a chance to know that Travoglini pursued research in the dementia fields.
4: His dementia didn't set in until later, so he was very much aware of me going to grad school and going for my Ph.D., and so he was really proud of that.
0: Family support matters to researchers like Travaglini in more ways than one. Millions of families are volunteering to help test new drugs and new ideas to advance understanding of Alzheimer's disease, knowing full well that the results likely won't materialize soon enough to help them. Until effective treatments are found, behavioral neurologist Ridi Patira will continue to treat the dementia patients in her care by holding their hands through the journey and helping them navigate their evolving relationships with their families. Her patients' biggest fear is that they will no longer be able to recognize their grandchildren. And that's painful to think for yourself, and that's painful to think for the loved ones. Research in the field, now more open to other alternatives, will continue to move along with both good and bad news. Patira says it can be frustrating as a clinician and as a patient or a patient's family, but Even if the studies don't work, you learn something. It's good for
3: science. Even if something doesn't work out, it's good for science. You learn lessons.
0: Shortly after Hardy's discovery that the APP gene was why her family was so afflicted with Alzheimer's, Carol Jennings quit her job as a teacher to work full-time supporting and advocating for Alzheimer's disease research. In the following decades, she worked closely with Hardy and then with other researchers at University College London. Jennings never took the genetic test for the APP mutation that led to her father, three aunts, and an uncle, five out of the 11 people in her family developing Alzheimer's disease. Carol's husband, Stuart Jennings, says she didn't think it was worthwhile because there was nothing that they could do. Their two children have likewise not been tested. In 2012, Carol Jennings was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. She was 58 years old. Carol Jennings is one of the very small fraction of people whom researchers can look at and say exactly why her brain has deteriorated. The brains of the vast majority of Alzheimer's patients, whose disease isn't tied to a specific gene, are more open to interpretation. Stuart Jennings says he found it interesting that the early symptoms were that things Carol did badly got worse. Then the things she was good at, like packing and organizing, started to deteriorate. It took years for her to get a formal diagnosis, but once she did, it was traumatic for the first couple of days. Jennings says his wife knew what the implications were, so she started giving instructions. She told her husband that when she dies, she wants her brain donated to the brain bank run by the team at University College London, as the brains of her other afflicted family members have been. She told him that he didn't have to keep her at home if he couldn't cope, but he must keep her clean. All the little details were ironed out. He's managed to keep her at home, and University College London researchers continue to follow the Jennings family. Carol and Stuart's son, John, works closely with them now, too. Carol wasn't bothered that disease-altering treatments didn't arrive in time to help her. To her, that was a small point. Stuart Jennings says his wife always worked on the principle that it's for the children and for the next generations. Matt Carlstrom helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Yasmin Seplakoglu's full article, What causes Alzheimer's? Scientists are rethinking the answer on our website, quantummagazine.org. Quantum Magazine is an editorially independent online publication supported by the Simons Foundation to enhance public understanding of science.